0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Great.
1: Um,
2: but really, we're thrilled to have you joining Thank the board. You it's, it's, and we're thrilled to have you here today. And, and this turnout is more than what we normally get for our members, our annual members meeting, and, and it's either a, um, a testimony to you or to what's going on in China today, which is pretty fascinating. Um, can I just start off with a simple question? Sure. The um, and I see Mary Kay Huntsman is also here today, so we should welcome Mary Kay. <laughs> and I say that because the Huntsman families played a, a a supporting role in the Borzoi drama. <laughs> and there's been a lot of ink spilled on the kind of car, bourgeois bugad drove or did not drive when he came to pick up your daughter. <laughs> so my first question is just to set the record straight. Did Guagua Gua pick up your daughter in a red Ferrari? <laughs> and do you know how this story got started?
3: You know, Steve, I don't think anybody gives a damn what kind of car the guy drove.
2: <laughs> oh, in the China community, it's a hot topic.
3: But beyond that, I was actually impressed that my daughter even recognized a car like that because she isn't used to seeing anything like that in our, in our driveway. Um, I'm not sure how it uh, made its way out, but uh, Beijing, at, at this point in time, uh, becomes a rumor mill. And uh, one story seems to get played upon many times over and fairly soon the original intent of whatever that story was, is magnified into something far different. I can't speak with firsthand knowledge because I wasn't there. Uh, I just take uh, as truth what uh, my daughters told me, who were out and have gone on record uh, with a couple of news organizations describing it in full. And I, I, I leave it at that. Uh, but I, I think it suggests uh, a much broader issue playing out in China today. Uh, And that is the whole Bo Xilai incident and what that means for domestic politics in China. And the very fact that we're reading about it, talking about it, I think would suggest that there's a high degree of transparency, more so than before in the system, which I would have to say is a good thing, because in years past, you have the velvet curtain and you never get to hear much about the political skirmishing that happens to be taking place at the highest levels of Chinese politics and decision making. And although it's a sordid tale from start to finish, and uh, like many in this room, you know, I followed Bo's career from mayor of Dalian to governor of Liaoning, right on through to his days as commerce minister, right on through to Chongqing. And the fact that we're reading about it and that China seems to be disseminating information, I guess, selectively and strategically about it would suggest that there is an attempt to want to get more information out. People are participating in the discussion, which means there is an element of transparency today that I haven't seen in years past. And I think that's a good thing, because I believe the people of China are hungering for greater transparency in their political system. And indeed, it's something that the United States States ought to be standing up for and promoting, greater transparency in
2: Chinese politics. Do you think we should... Release any of the information that uh, Wang Nijun gave to the U.S. consulate when he made his 30-hour visit? That would increase transparency. Well,
3: I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of information to be turned over that hasn't already been turned over.
2: I mean made public.
3: Well, and that's what I'm referring to. So with our consul general not there at the time, you would have had more of a junior officer. In uh, Chengdu. Uh, I've read the accounts and the major papers, and I think they've uh, pretty much spoken uh, clearly about what likely took place. I have no information beyond that, which I've already read. And then you've got selective leaks on the part of the Chinese government uh, that seems to want to play on that incident. Uh, and again, it speaks to greater transparency in the system. But the very fact that Wang Li Jun would defect to the U.S. consulate suggests to me that still the safest place in China is the United States Embassy uh, and U.S. consulates. The fact that somebody at the end of the day would try to find a safe haven uh, where they could find justice uh, I think said a whole lot to me about how the United States is still viewed by so many in China.
2: Interesting. The... um... Let's go back to when you first became ambassador. You were governor of Utah. You accepted President Obama's request, and at the time you said it was your it was your patriotic duty, which I think we all agree with. At that point, back then, did you have any idea that you might run for president? And part of that is, did you think your association with President Obama might I don't know if the word doom your Your presidential candidacy in the Republican Party is right, but certainly negatively affected in a major way. You
3: know, Steve, if I had any inkling that I was going to run for president, you think I would have taken that appointment? The one thing that people held against me from the day I announced was the fact that I crossed party lines to serve a Democrat. I did. I'm proud of that fact, and I would do it again because I was raised with the ethos of always putting your country first. I mean, I admired... People like Nick Platt, who's sitting here on the front row. I mean, people who have given so much to furthering U.S. interests abroad. These are, you know, I remember so well my first trip to China. I would lived in Taiwan in the late 1970s. My first trip to China was with the Reagan delegation as a low-level advance man. I mean, you don't get any lower in, in White House protocol than as an advance man. But I went over there as part of the advance group and then with Reagan in at the early 1980s. And I walked in the residence where I later lived, where you've been many times, and there was Arthur Hummel sitting in that gracious living room. And I was just in my early 20s at the time, and I thought, I have an opportunity to shake the hand of the United States ambassador to China. How cool is that? And I remember exactly where he was sitting in the living room, because I used to go sit there when I had a moment or two at night just to reflect on the issues of the day. And I'll never forget that that handshake. And I thought it was about the most important person I'd ever met in my life. Why? Because he was serving his nation in ways that would be hard to describe, having not been over there, putting country first, the work that the Foreign Service does, the work that the U.S. military does. I've always thought that that was uh, bigger and more important than politics. So when I was asked to take the job, I said, of course, I'll consider it. Let's talk. We had a conversation in the White House on a Saturday, kind of somewhat covertly, if I could put it that way. And uh, I was in there with Mary Kay, just the three of us in the Oval Office. We had a conversation about it, and I accepted. And uh, it was rolled out to the press within a matter of days. And uh, we took our family and went over and served for a couple of years. I knew that it wouldn't be more than uh, a couple of years. I've lived overseas four times with a family, seven kids, some of whom are going through some mighty important uh, developmental years. We've got a couple boys in the military, a daughter who got married. Constant demands here on the state side. We knew we couldn't stay on the other side of the Pacific for too long. So we put in our two years and came back and took a look at... uh, the presidential race, and I did it for one reason. I concluded that the issues of the 2012 election cycle were critically important to jump into now as opposed to 2016 because a lot of folks would say, well, why don't you wait until 2016? Well, I guess I'm not political enough to plan my life that way. You come back from service abroad and you're able to see the United States from 10,000 miles away. You walk the streets of Beijing, you walk the streets of Shanghai, you walk the streets of Tianjin, and there's a sense of energy, there's a sense of optimism, you know what I mean? Their time has arrived, and you reflect on the situation here in the United States from all the way over there, and we're a bit in a funk, which is so unlike the traditional American spirit. You know, we're, we're an optimistic, blue-sky problem-solving people. Yet from 10,000 miles away, I couldn't help but see this country in a deep funk. Yet we're much better than that. And I thought of the issues that I had worked on as governor, tax reform, education reform, building out infrastructure, engaging with the major markets of the world, same thing that needs to be done on on a national level. If you're not willing to jump in and get involved in the election cycle, then that says something about your level of patriotism. And I thought... Our family has a choice coming back from service abroad we either get in the race and put forward our best efforts bring uh, to the forefront the knowledge that or experiences that we've accumulated as governor and a couple of other jobs or you can wait it out and stand on the sidelines and I thought I'm not going to do the sidelines that's just not that's not me so we got in the race it was a little short-lived more so than I would have imagined But my wife told me at the beginning of the journey, I have to blame her for some of it. She said, she said, if you pander or if you sign any of those silly damn pledges, I will leave you. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew at that point I was pretty much toast. But uh, but we carried on and uh, we focused our efforts primarily on New Hampshire um, arguing that there would be a lot of independents who were ready for a message based on problem solving and reality based solutions. Because I can't do anything but that. You know, I have a hard time just playing the average, the regular political game. And then when a guy named Michael Moore went on television and said, that Huntsman guy, he's a Republican I could actually support. <laughs> <laughs> You're doomed. I knew in Iowa I was totally, totally done. Totally done. Not to be outdone by Bill Clinton, who then went on television and said, that Huntsman guy, he seems like a pretty bound fellow. He's, he's actually a Republican I could support. I knew I was really done. Not just in Iowa, but in South Carolina at that point. So we did our best. But okay. thanks for reminding us all of that chapter. I think there were
2: a discussion. few more Democrats who found you to be their favorite Republican, including this one. Uh, the... Um, So early, let's go back to China. So you've become ambassador. There's a rough patch in the relationship. You know, the Dalai Lama visits the White House. We sell, we have a major arms sale to Taiwan. Question now that you're no longer serving. Are these problems avoidable? Is there some way that we can come up with some construct that, This does not disrupt the relationship.
3: You have to take the cyclicality out of the relationship. This was always on my mind while I was there. Whether arms sales, whether human rights cases, and they're all important. Whether the Dalai Lama, which is very important. They all creep into the relationship. And we have our own approach as a country, usually pretty much a bipartisan approach I've seen over the years. And when we pursue our own approach to problem solving or engaging on these issues, we find ourselves in a trough. I used to liken it to being put in the penalty box as ambassador because it's a very unique experience. Dave Shambaugh was over there at the time. I remember sharing some of these lovely experiences with him where you're you're disconnected from the protocol list, uh, diplomatically speaking, and you're put for a time in the penalty box and the doors are closed to you. And uh, meetings don't always work out. And your ability to get around and visit the provinces, as I like to do, uh, is sometimes made a little difficult. And it's how you take the cyclicality out of the relationship. And the cyclicality is, in, is in invariably tied to the politics of the issue. And as Wang Shan told me after one round of trade talks, which were on agriculture, about a year into my stay, he came up at the middle of the negotiation And he said, as if to say, you know, you crazy Americans don't realize that we also have politics in China. And indeed, one thing we don't appreciate or recognize in this country is the depth and the complexity of politics in China around all of their issues and the factions within the Communist Party that are always trying to find their edge with respect to whatever issue happens to be playing out. So I'm not sure we're we're going to be successful short term in taking the cyclicality out of the relationship. I think the best we can hope for at this point is to be frank and honest at the negotiating table and be upfront about what it is we stand for and be upfront it is about what our interests are in certain issues and, uh, and recognize that we're going to have some separation on some of these issues. I think we find ourselves in a much deeper hole when China is surprised by some of our decision-making or when they're not given ample or requisite uh, notification, which, you know, ought to be part of uh, our give and take in the relationship. So I don't know that you can hope to clear out all the cycles. I think we can hope for the relationship in the tour and to get beyond the ups and downs of the predictable relationship. For example, Taiwan and arms sales. If you had told me living in Taiwan back in the late 1970s that I would live to see the day where there would be 300 plus flights weekly between the mainland and Taiwan, that I would live to see the day of a free trade agreement, ECFA, between the mainland and Taiwan, I would have called you crazy. But that's where we are today. And so the issues move forward uh, and they take on a different hue, a uh, different uh, uh, it, you know, a different set of complexity as they, uh, complexities as they move forward. I think the challenge in the relationship and how we take these cycles out ultimately will be to recognize that the relationship no longer is simply a bilateral relationship. It's a global relationship. The one thing I recognized above all was the fact that we were dealing, the U.S.-China relationship, with a truly global relationship. We have a hard time recognizing what that means, because I don't think we've ever really managed a global relationship in terms of what traditionally has been in a bilateral construct. And I know China's having a very difficult time coming to grips with what it means to have the U.S.-China relationship so much more than just our traditional bilateral dialogue. So when Dr. Kissinger and Nick Platt and the folks who were around during the creation of the relationship made the breakthrough in February of 1972, my friends in China would refer to that period as Jinru China preparing to enter the world. And I think of the bold stroke of a president of the United States. I mean, just think about this. I had the fortune a couple of months ago of being in India for a speech. And on the program was also Dr. Kissinger. So we spent a little bit of time after talking about the then versus the now. Uh, a president of the United States... Flying into China, February 1972. Uh, we were fighting them in Vietnam. We fought them a generation before on the Korean peninsula. China lost 400,000 men, including the son of Mao Zedong, who's buried there. The midst of the Cultural Revolution, barely into the National Committee's work, starting in 1966. Very little culture, very little in the way of trade and commerce, in fact, nothing at all. And into that uncertainty lands air force 1 and the president of the united states shakes the hand of joe and lie that transforms the world and then you take the relationship from 72 to 1989 november where i stood in doha gutter for the launch of the wto ministerial and my chinese friends refer to that moment in history as china formally entering the world and China thereby embraced hundreds of commitments, a thousand-page document. I remember looking at it at the time. It was quite, uh, quite intimidating. 5,000 years of rule of man transforming into, some attempt at the rule of law. And then I fast forward from 1989 on to today, where you've got the United States and China both on the world stage, both looking at each other, wondering what to make of all this. The complexity involved in a dialogue that isn't just trade and investment, or human rights or regional security but a dialogue that includes economic rebalancing globally that includes financial crises in Europe that includes weapons development in Iran peace on the Korean peninsula regional security South China Sea Burma the environment how do you package all of this in a way that allows one to come up with a hierarchy of priorities that ring through loud and clear such that you can actually get things done. Part of the problem in the U.S.-China relationship is the sheer noise level, the cacophony, the, 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 the many priorities that people are throwing into the relationship wanting to see done. The hard part I found as U.S. ambassador was how do you strip the noise away from the relationship and put on the table the priorities that really do matter to the people on both sides. How do you develop stronger economies? How do you develop policies geared toward greater peace and stability in the region? How do you lift the prospects of people on both sides of the Pacific in ways that allow for the U.S.-China relationship to come out with a win-win outcome? These are the challenges, and they're not easy. And it means that we're going to have to look at the way we're transacting business today, which is more of the old style, even the strategic and economic dialogue, It's uh, large, it's scripted, it's bureaucratic. I would argue that we're probably not getting out of it what the taxpayers are, are paying to get it accomplished. And how do you get from that point to a dialogue that speaks to enhancing trust, people to people, leadership team to leadership team? Because at the end of the day, and I reflect back on our first envoy, Uh, to China back in the 1840s. He was sent over by William Henry Harrison right after he died. And uh, in a response to the Treaty of Nanjing, where the Brits had been able to open up the ports and engage in commerce and trade, we were locked out. And so our envoy was sent over, I think, 1842. And uh, negotiated the Treaty of Guangzhou, which sought to open ports for U.S. concessions, and also in the process was able to achieve some agreement on extraterritoriality, the first of its kind ever negotiated. And I say, how do we go from, you know, those days, which where the lay of the land was so much different, to where we are today, where the one thing that remains the same, Steve, is the fact that diplomacy is still done person to person, person to person based on trust. You can't do it based on Twitter, you can't do it based on Facebook. High technology doesn't make it any, any better, any easier. It's still person to person. So how do we develop a relationship at the highest levels that speaks to enhancing trust on the hierarchy of issues that we deem to be the most important? That'll be the challenge. And that's, that, that need is not going away anytime soon because the US-China relationship for as far as the eye can see into the 21st century will be the only relationship in the world that matters. Yeah.
2: Do you think that leads perfectly into kind of the next question, which is, and, and this relates to a particular experience you had when you were ambassador, which was Secretary Gates was visiting, and um, the Chinese rolled out a test of the uh, the J-20, their stealth fighter. And according to published reports, uh, Secretary Gates was deeply insulted and felt he was a very pro-constructive engagement secretary was looking rationally at China and he wanted to leave Uh, just that's it cancel the meetings get on an airplane and come back to the United States and according to the reports you persuaded him uh, not to do that you played a major role in persuading him not to leave so my question is number one how did you do that and number two you've said that China is entering the world stage but this And then there was also the description of a meeting where, after you persuaded him not to leave, where Hu Jintao seemed not to know that this had occurred, and they went down a line of Chinese officials, and you had to go fairly well down the line before somebody says, oh, yeah, "Yeah, we did that. Uh, But it, it shows the absence of a National Security Council for a... Small country is okay, but for a global power, it really is troublesome because interagency coordination is so difficult in China. So how, both the specific question, how did it work that day with Secretary Gates? What can you tell us about it? And then is China not having the National Security Council a serious risk to kind of the personal diplomacy that you talk about and the China's entry on the world stage?
3: Well, Doug Paul will tell you from firsthand experience, uh, and I, from having lived over there, that China's in need of, of an organizing uh, function that does allow for uh, a National Security Council type of process to be managed because it doesn't exist today. You can sit down on a meeting with Dai Bingguo and you can talk about foreign policy and touch on national security, but in the audience, you won't find anyone from the PLA, a division. So their challenge, of course, is going to be coming up with a bureaucratic construct that allows for them to coordinate in, in a way that is more efficient than the way they're doing today. With respect to Secretary Gates, uh, and I'll never forget standing in that, in that room where we heard word over open channels that the J-20 had flown, and Secretary Gates uh, was upset about that because he's hot as a direct uh, insult. To him and to the United States and he said I think we ought to just cancel the rest of the program well the following day we were going out to the second artillery and for U.S. officials that's a pretty rare thing as Susan Shirk will tell you and uh, and I I turned to Secretary Gates and I said well why don't we try this why don't uh, why don't we go forward with the meeting and why don't you ask President Hu for his advice on how to handle this issue Tell him that we have to meet the press after this meeting and you're going to have to explain uh, away the J-20 incident and you're going to have to answer the questions and you'd like to coordinate on what that response should be because after all, I think we were 10 days to 2 weeks out from a major state visit uh, by Hu Jintao to the United States and after all, what we're trying to do is to maintain a high road environment in the run-up to that visit. And Secretary Gates said... I kind of like that idea. Let's go for it. So we went on with the meeting and uh, he went through his talking points very professionally uh, and then he got to the end and he said uh, President who? I have one other issue I'd like to bring up Uh, we had word of the J-20 flying today Uh, I'd like to know if this was in any way directed toward me or the United States Uh, and Moreover, how should I begin to answer the questions that will no doubt come up after this bilateral meeting uh, from the Western press? And uh, that's when, as a China watcher, and we have people here far more sophisticated than I am, but having been at it for 30 plus years, uh, this is like you know watching that rare moment that you know you uh, uh, had always waited and studied to, to see when Hu Jintao. Uh, turned to the defense minister uh, and said something to the effect of, this is this true? <laughs> did it did it did it fly?" And uh, and I looked at that and I thought, "Whoa, this is a rare moment." Uh, and I think then the Chinese side looked over at the U.S. side and probably figured that there were some Chinese speakers in the crowd. And uh, and then Liang uh, Guangye then turned to. Uh, uh, General Ma, who then turned to <laughs> one or two others. And back, the response came to President Hu Jintao: No, Secretary Gates, you're not to take offense at this. It was only a scientific research experiment. <laughs> so we left with, with, with two uh, things in mind. One, the great euphemism that was used, the scientific uh, re- research experiment. Uh, and second of all, the divide that clearly existed between civilian and military leadership and how the principle had not been briefed for whatever reason, uh, which in our system would have been fairly fatal. and <laughs> You would think in their system would uh, create some real problems. It, maybe it did in the aftermath. But uh, that to me was evidence, uh, again, of, their, of the divide uh, within their bureaucracy and the need to come up with some sort of National Security Council type of coordinating mechanism, which I think increasingly is going to be a very important part of our interaction uh, on the regional security level.
2: Yeah. Back again to your early days as as ambassador. There's a view in the China-watching community that um, after uh, the financial crisis, that China adopted a more assertive foreign policy. That, um, as a result of our what they viewed cause of financial crisis and our weakness after the financial crisis, that across a whole arc of issues, starting with the Diaoyu Dao dispute with Japan, to North Korea, to the South China Sea, you know, behavior towards Vietnam, behavior towards. Um, Uh, the Philippines, uh, rare earth export restrictions, a whole host of issues that they became um, more assertive. Sitting there from your perch as Ambassador, do you think, number one, that was the case? And if so, what was kind of the, the intellectual foundation for that? Who was advocating that? Policy was there ever was there any evidence that there was a Politburo okay we can be more assertive or what what was going on here it's always been uh, an issue I've been very unclear on
3: well I when you talk about those issues that are most prominent in Chinese uh, foreign policy making you'd have to put sovereignty right at the center right at the core they're core issues as they refer to them as. Uh, And all of these decisions would have come out of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. There's no question about that. Um, But at the time, what went through my mind was the thought that China had encountered significant uncertainty without any kind of preparation for it. They had no idea, nor did anyone (laughs) in the international economy, that uh, the major economies of the world were about to go off a cliff. So they're exporting their way to prosperity and ringing up 1.5, 2 trillion, soon to be $3 trillion in foreign exchange. They're engaging in trade and commerce with the rest of the world, bringing in raw materials from Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, the subcontinent. And then the economy, the global economy turns off. I think there was such fear and fright about what to do next, that the machinery of Chinese decision-making went into overdrive in terms of how they should handle the situation. And I think that sense of uncertainty, not knowing where the global economy was going and where they would earn their next round of foreign exchange, caused them to begin looking inward, the uncertainty of the U.S. market, the uncertainty of Europe. Uh, and I think that uncertainty then gave rise to uh, the SOE world uh, becoming more protectionist. And if there's if another thing that I observed while I was here was the rise of, Special interest politics, if I can put it that way, in China. So whether it's the landowners, developers, whether it's the extraction industry, whether it's gas and oil, you've got the rise of domestic industries uh, like I've never seen before, complete with special interest groups that uh, lobby on behalf of uh, some of their pet interests. And so in this world of economic uncertainty, uh, they look inward. And they become more protectionists, and they give more power and decision-making authority to SOEs Uh, because they don't know what lies around the corner. If they stay engaged in terms of open and free trade, so to speak, where is that going to take them ultimately? What's it going to do for their people? And if you think then longer term about what their objective is on the economic side, which is to maintain enough in the way of jobs and, and economic growth to keep the party in power, The party is only as stable as as the economy. So to keep the party in power, and that again is a legacy of Deng Xiaoping. So I would argue the Deng Xiaoping dynasty pretty much comes to an end this October at the 18th Party Congress. Xi Jinping was not anointed by Deng Xiaoping. But Deng leaves behind the legacy of economic opening to the world, diplomatic overtures to the world, so long as people abide by a one-China policy. And primacy of the party. There will, no, there will be no competitors domestically. It will be the centerpiece of Chinese decision-making in power. So how do you keep the party in power? To keep the party in power, you've got to keep the economy going. Why is there so much concern today? Of course, the bonds that in plays into some of that. Uh, the transition upcoming in October plays into part of that. But I think the economy largely is what probably gives concern to most people these days. Where are the export markets that we can look to tomorrow? Where will the investment be when we need it most? What to do about generating enough jobs and opportunity to keep unemployment at a certain level so that we don't increase what is already a large itinerant workforce, putting stresses and strains particularly on the eastern seaboard cities. So during that period, I do believe that it was the downturn of the global economy that gave rise to greater protectionism, and indeed, a desire to want to exert greater influence in the region, which I would argue was a mistake. And they recognized it as such. So what happened as they uh, deployed and projected power into the South China Sea and beyond? ASEAN turned to the United States with open arms. I've, I've lived in Singapore. Uh, I've watched it from that vantage point. And I have to say, I've never seen a time in recent history where ASEAN has been so open for... Uh, an economic and political relationship with the United States. They want a counterweight. They want a balance. They want to make sure that politically there will be uh, that counterweight, and they want to make sure that economically the sea lanes remain open for the free, free flow of trade and commerce, which has been, I think, one of our greatest contributions to regional prosperity uh, for many decades now.
2: You said that economic I- and politically. Do you also mean strategically, or are you differing from the administration on this. On oh, I think strategically pivot, as well. Was, so you think... I, I'm not sure the,
3: the, the pivot is, is uh, any kind of new phenomenon. I mean, we've been a major player in the region for over 100 years. Uh, you could call it uh, the pivot when uh, I was there uh, 20 years ago when the Philippines basically had sent us away. And some went north and we moved Comlog Westpac to Singapore for the first time. I guess some people in those days would have called it a type of pivot. But we have interest in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, and I think uh, that focusing more on that, uh, that region is longer-term in our interest. I used to say during the course of the campaign that America's longer-term interests are not Iraq and not Afghanistan. They are how well prepared we are as a people to meet the competitive challenges of the 21st century. And that's going to be about economics and that'll be about education. And that will take us by and large across the Pacific Ocean where two-thirds of our trade will flow uh, into countries that I've lived in before that I've seen what they're doing to prepare for the future, both economically and from an education standpoint. And we've got some work to do. We've got some real work to do where we're going to see the end of the American century at some point, midpoint this century, if we don't get our act together. I think that's absolutely unacceptable for most Americans.
2: I'm going to open the floor to questions shortly because um, we have got a spectacular audience of some great China scholars, diplomats, business people. So let me just... I have a couple of questions I must ask. Um, one rel- relates to your showing up in the McDonald's uh, which became one of the... Um, for those of you who are not aware of this event, it was after the jasmine revolution and, and um, the revolutions in the mid east and there was a call in China to kind of organize uh, demonstrations uh, on Wang fujing to call for a, a jasmine revolution in in um, in china and Nothing came of it except Ambassador Huntsman was photographed as walking by this McDonald's, which, cre- McDonald's which created quite a, uh, um, a diplomatic uh, brouhaha with the Chinese who were, who were very unhappy. So my question is simple. Were you there well, on not purpose? One, we? <laughs> were you there on purpose?
3: Well, anyone who would have followed us, as I suspect some did, on a typical Sunday walk, uh, it happened somewhere between our favorite restaurant called Chuanban, where we would typically walk on a Sunday afternoon and uh, the Wang Fujiing neighborhood. And uh, I guess on Sunday afternoons, I used to walk my family a lot. And uh, in that report, in the picture that was taken, of course, Ambassador Huntsman surrounded by his burly bodyguards. Well, the guy in front of me was my son, William, a football player at the <laughs> Naval Academy. And, and the burly guy behind me was my son-in-law, uh, along with my daughter, Gracie, who turned 13 from Yangzhou, China. Uh, And if anyone had taken a closer look, I suspect they would have concluded that, you know, uh, any sane person would not show up with their uh, young daughter uh, (laughs) at the making of a revolution. Uh, There uh, were people gathered. As you walk through the streets, you can't help but pay attention to the people who were gathered. Uh, and listen, everybody knew that weekend that there were going to be activities in certain parts of town and uh, as uh, first and foremost an embassy reporter, which is what everybody is, uh, you want to take a look at it and report back and uh, when you see people gathering you want to go up and take a look and as soon as I took a look I thought I know exactly what's happening and we moved on our way and uh, had to deal with the, the fallout later on, including some choice words from others in leadership that I won't get into right now. Uh, But it was a very interesting and tense moment uh, in China. Any gathering of more than about five people on uh, street corners caused folks to be be completely taken out. There was a sense of paranoia. uh, And it reminded me a little bit of um, when I visited China in the run-up to Tiananmen Square in spring of 19... 89, it would have been. And um, this was right after Glasnost and Perestroika had played out in the Soviet Union. And there was a sense among China's leadership that we're going to learn from what happened under Gorbachev. And we're not going to let that happen to us. And we're going to reform the economy well ahead of doing anything politically. Because Gorbachev did it in reverse, and look what's happened to him. Fifteen republics have become 15 new nation-states, and the region is in turmoil. And there were lessons learned. And I got the same sense with the jasmine winds that were blowing in North Africa and the Middle East, that China was watching very, very closely, and that they were going to take some lessons from that chapter as well. And you could feel it as you were on the ground, uh, this very heavy security overlay uh, that really was quite tense. Uh, Police put out in greater numbers on uh, most major street corners. Outside of our embassy, we had far more in the way of woojing than we would typically have. Uh, There was a sense of fear in the air, a sense of real uncertainty. And uh, I know for a lot of, particularly those in the dissident community, there was cause for great alarm during that period as many of them received extra visits
2: and some of them were rounded up. Mm -hmm. A little question, since the Jasmine revolutions in the Mideast that there has been the security forces in China have played a more active role, I think, and that was created during that period and has continued through today. Mm -hmm. Um, Leads to my final question before opening, allowing the audience to ask you some questions. How do you think the embassy handled the Chong Guangcheng case?
3: Well, I think it's unfair for me to render any kind of judgment on something like that because I know in circumstances like that, people do their very best. Um, the embassy is full of some of the best and brightest young people, fact, people of all ages I think I've ever run across. I have to tell you that, Steve. To be able to associate with the men and women who populate the 30 plus different agencies and departments who were there it was really a thrill. To wake up every morning and think, I get to hang out with, with America's best and brightest, doing things that are advancing America's interests in ways that most Americans will never, never hear about. I had a hard time figuring out why John uh, ever left the embassy to begin with, because you lose leverage at that point, obviously. Uh, and I wondered throughout about the gap between Sui Tian Kai uh, and Joe Yong Kong, because there's a huge chasm in terms of leadership between the two. And I wondered all the while uh, whether the discussions with Sui Teng Kai, who I got to know extremely well while I was there, were being uh, passed on in real time uh, to the Standing Committee, uh, to Joe Yong Kong, who has enormous power. In today's China. And his seat will be the very interesting one to watch uh, filled. That uh, I think would have been uh, the Bo Xilai seat, number nine uh, in the lineup. Um, so it was, you know, it was an interesting time.
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I would argue that the. I probably should have asked the question in terms of the administration as opposed to the embassy. I think actually it was a terrific job that the negotiation of his kind of release from the embassy to go to Chaoyang Hospital and then ultimately on to Tianjin uh, to study was truly um, earth shattering in the sense that we've never had a someone who had been persecuted remain in China. They've come to the United States and that to kind of remain in China and be the voice um, that he wanted to be would have been quite something. So I think the State Department, you know, Kurt Campbell, Ambassador Locke, Harold Koh, did a a fantastic job in actually negotiating that. And then, because he'd been under in prison or under house arrest for seven years, one can only imagine the fragile state that he is in. So he gets to Chaoyang Hospital and is besieged with, we've given him all these cell phones, and he's besieged with calls saying... You can't trust the Chinese government. And these are people who were part of the dissident community and believe that. In fact, I think probably the, the preponderance of evidence would be that, in this case, the Chinese government had a lot of reasons to live up to these informal commitments. But then he changed his mind. So he says, I want to come to the United States. And then, to the great credit of both you know, the, the, the Obama administration team, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that he gets to come to the, you know, they say, okay, like any Chinese citizen, he can come to the United States and study, and he, he makes it to New York. So I actually, it's one of those instances where where I think the team did a, really um, you know, I would give them 100%, and was I was chagrined at um, Governor Romney's criticism of the process, and surprised, actually, that, he was, you know, I think he, I can't remember the way he was. We were abandoning him to the Chinese. It was, I know you've endorsed him, uh, but my last question is, what do you think of no, his China? What do you think then. of his China policy and his willingness <laughs> well, to brand China as a currency manipulator on day one? <laughs> that's my last well, question. Well, let's, let, let's, let's
3: get back to China just for a yeah. second. I mean, the bottom line is he's here. And I think that speaks to real success and a lot of hard work on the part of both sides. But what it also tells me is that when the relationship has to work and has it to function in real time, yep. even after a week of... Bron- and uh, the Washington Post has, has a writer here called William Wan who did an excellent piece on uh, putting together all, all of the pieces as it played out in the days leading up to, uh, to his journey here, uh, the most detailed I, I've seen. Uh, when the relationship needs to work, it can do so. Uh, and you can only imagine uh, the, uh, the emotional turmoil that Chun would have been going through sitting in the Marine House for probably six days on the embassy compound, thinking on the one hand, I've got freedom here. and I have my family over here. What do I take? Uh, and his journey in getting there, you can only imagine that he would have been emotionally wrought. Yep. Leaves the embassy, of course, and we've all heard about, you know, Gary Locke, asking you know, three times very emphatically, are you sure you want to leave, which was the right thing for the ambassador to do, and then finding himself uh, all alone in Chaoyang Hospital and the sense of uncertainty, uh, insecurity that that, would have, uh, that that would have created for him. But he's here, uh, and I think that's important uh, because at the end of the day, when both sides had to get together and find one of those elegant solutions, which this was, he couldn't have just come over as an average. He had to come over here to, uh, to to appease certain decision makers in China as as a student a student visa that worked for them. It worked for us. We found a pathway forward. We were able to get it done. So we'll see where that one goes. But I, I've got to tell you that in the in the dissident community, I mean some of some have asked what the most important thing ever did was over China. You, get, you know, I guess you can cite a hundred different things that, you know, are being part of important discussions or negotiations or decisions that are made at high levels that a lot of people don't hear about. But I'll never forget uh, driving to see uh, Niu Yulan, who was another dissident, who was just recently put back in prison, or so I read in the newspaper. And I heard about her plight uh, living uh, in temporary housing. She'd been homeless for a while in the outskirts of Beijing and uh, I was made it a point uh, to focus a little bit on people who were in trouble with their own government, uh, to focus on that group, to focus on students because you get the voice and the sense of the next generation and what the relationship would likely consist of in terms of views and then I also made it a point to meet with entrepreneurs kind of the emerging talent, the creative clash, if you will, coming up very, very quickly in China. But getting out to see Niu Yulan in the first category, those who are typically in trouble with their, with their government. I drove that old embassy car, that, that armored Cadillac with the flag out front. You know, they had some of these you know, old alleyways in Beijing to her apartment. She'd been homeless before this, and the government had put her in temporary housing. Got out of the car, walked into her place, And there she was in her bed because she can't walk uh, because of what she has endured in terms of uh, uh, torture. And she had these tears in her eyes. Not that I was there, but that the United States was there. And there was someone who had taken the time to visit her who represented the values that she so desperately wanted to project uh, through an Internet that was never quite working properly in her apartment. And to see the look in her face when I walked in that room is something I will never forget. And it taught me the important lesson of what really is powerful about the United States. Our Pacific Command is pretty powerful, but I'd have to say our values are infinitely more powerful in the way they move people and transform history. And the look I got from Ni Ulan walking in that room, I can't even describe it to you because it was such a sense of relief on her part that she'd been recognized by someone who carried the values that she was trying to promote and doing so at great risk uh, in great pain and there are a lot of new lungs running around right now looking for a break, looking for a little extra recognition, looking for a time when their issues might be recognized. Uh, I don't know when that will be but I'd have to say that with the new leadership team taking place in October, solidifying their power base sometime middle of next year. You have to think that there will be an opening, and I'm an optimist, Steve, in all things. or I wouldn't be here. (laughs) There there will likely be an opening uh, for Xi Jinping to begin to address some of these issues uh, around reform, maybe just within the political uh, party construct, but reform nonetheless. Addressing religious tolerance, Maybe issues relating to transparency in government. And maybe the role of the Internet in society. Because you cannot truly develop your economy or have a world-class, creative and entrepreneurial class of people without the Internet in society. And I can't help but think, given the pragmatists that I see Xi Jinping as being, and Li Keqiang, who I think understands the economy exceptionally well, uh, I think there will be an opening sometime in late 2013 through 2015 or 2016 for a dynamic to take place that speaks to some change and reform. The United States needs to be part of that. And I think the question for us on this side will be, will we be ready? Are we gonna be organized in a way that allows us to take advantage of that opening? That allows us to sit down at the table with the hierarchy of issues that really do matter, economic and security, our values among them and to have the kind of conversation that I think are going to be good for people on both sides of the Pacific that will expand the relationship in ways that are not just shared interests but shared values as well because it's that part that's going to give the relationship the glue that will hold it together well into the future.
2: That is optimistic. The um, Governor Romney's China policy? You missed that part of the question. <laughs> well, I, I, thought I, was, <laughs>
3: I
4: thought I was... I, a, that was an implicit I thought criti- I was... That a,
2: was an implicit criticism.
3: Expansive enough uh, during the Republican debate where they give you three and a half seconds to talk about your worldview. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that we've had a fully articulated uh, China policy from, uh, from any of the candidates. Uh, and now Romney's the only person standing. And we'll have to wait uh, to see what, in fact, we hear. Uh, You're going to hear one thing during the early part of the campaign, uh, during the primary phase. Uh, You've got uh, constituencies that want the red meat, uh, that want the attack lines. And I'd sit there in the far corner of the stage and one candidate would say, if elected president, I'm going to declare war on China. And the crowd would go crazy. And I'd say, what's going on here? (laughs) And that's what I would say. And uh, when elected president, I'm going to, I'm going to, slap tariffs on China on day one for manipulating their currency get around to me. And I, I try to explain the reality of the relationship. No crowd applause. There was no red meat in that answer at all. Uh, just trying to be straight up and honest about it. You'd get applause in this
2: audience. The, um, can, let me <coughs> take questions, in fact, from the audience. Um, you know, which I'm, I'm happy to continue questioning for the next 30 minutes, but let me... Um, my, the, Tom Finger, right here. Uh,
0: Thank you, Governor, for your service and for accepting position on our board. Thank you, Tom. I'd like to pick up on what you had to say about transparency. I was in China a few days ago uh, with people that I've known for, for decades, many many of them. And in several conversations, the idea that the government should be more transparent, came up. They raised it. And the difference from earlier conversations was one from an acceptance that the government and the party, they did their thing, and as long as benefits flowed, it didn't need to worry about it too much, didn't need to know. Too much. There was a marked change now, with a which I would characterize as a, we want to know what's going on. Uh, we have a right to know what's going on. It's stopped way short of we have a right to influence in elections and that. But the increase in transparency that you referred to, I think, is matched by expectations that people will know more. And that's going to push the leadership in the party particularly in that consolidation of power period. And I wonder if you would have a few thoughts that you would share on playing to the Chinese public, being responsive and responsible to the Chinese people as the new leadership settles in, and having to get settled in, the trade-offs during that tough period.
3: A couple of things, Tom. Tom. Uh, first of all, I think uh, their continued opening economically to the rest of the world will require uh, a a certain standardizing of the approach businesses, uh, the way in which business is transacted and done. You just can't make decisions uh, behind the velvet curtain and uh, and express an opinion up or down without showing evidence of what went into that decision. Uh, Greater transparency in how decisions are made and why they're made. I think I think the process of opening up economically will, will take the bureaucracy more and more in that direction, uh, inevitably. Uh, and two, one of the greatest changes that, I, that I've picked up on, uh, and I go back to you know, a visit to the State Planning Commission back, back in the old days, you know, the, the, the blue-suited bureaucrats uh, compared to visiting the offices of decision-makers today. Uh, who are well educated, they speak fluent English, uh, they've studied uh, overseas, they're very good and very sophisticated. Uh, and what do they say when you have a discussion, a negotiation of trade, economics, investment, whatever? I never heard this before. They say we are hearing from our people. Wow. First time I heard that, I was completely blown away. We're hearing from our people. This is a two-way conversation taking place in China these days. It ain't one way, it's a two-way conversation. They're hearing from their people uh, via comments and the the blogosphere uh, and different ministries posting, you know, boards, comment boards uh, on various uh, issues. And I think to some degree they're they're using that in their negotiations, uh, which can either help or hurt us. Uh, But the fact that they're taking in comments, the fact that they're listening to voices from the outside, I find this being a a significant change. Uh, And I don't know that that's going to diminish anytime soon. I think those voices will continue to be heard. I think greater pressure will be placed on the body politic uh, to see more, to understand more, uh, to mix it up just a little bit more in terms of how decisions are made. Even within the party itself, how leaders leaders are chosen. Uh, And I know this has been tried before and always failed, but I suspect that... uh, this will be reintroduced again, and that's the idea of competition for some of the, the, party, uh, the party positions. And it all kind of speaks to you know, a, 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 a broadening of, of transparency generally. I think recognizing rule of law, which I think is going to be the, one of the most important contributions that we can make uh, in the United States toward, uh, toward greater uh, stability and regularizing the system in China, will also suggest there be a lot more transparency. In fact, one of the more exciting um, work programs that uh, has been undertaken uh, in recent years has been with law school deans in China, working uh, with the predictable institutions in China, but I think that will be broadened over time. Uh, And as I used to sit down and meet with the law school deans when they come through my office, I always hit on that point of transparency, the importance of rule of law, how that rule of law concept in the area of economic policymaking, once established, we're far from it, but once established, is going to have implications for other aspects of, uh, of society and life in China. And I think that whole rule of law undertaking uh, on the part of uh, universities in the United States is a terribly important and consequential uh, move. Slow, uh, and I'm sure requiring a great deal of patience, but it's something we ought to hang with and continue to make a, a priority. Ken Roth,
2: president of Human Rights Watch.
4: I wanted to ask you a somewhat parochial question, which is how would you fashion a human rights policy toward China in light of what I see as sort of three constraining realities? Um, one, that, that the Chinese, if they had their way, would reduce the human rights discussion to a semi annual dialogue in the back room of the foreign ministry with no publicity whatsoever, and nothing would happen. Um, second, the U.S.-China relationship has become you know, very multifaceted, and whereas traditionally the State Department carried the water on human rights. Today, you know, Commerce, Treasury, Defense all have their own relations, and so China tends to see human rights as, as a more parochial and therefore less important issue for the United States. And third, your observation that really a lot of what matters here is the Chinese people, but how do you communicate to the Chinese people when there is concern about uh, the Chinese leadership losing face? And we saw this with the Xi Jinping visit where Joe Biden is very reluctant to speak publicly for fear of embarrassing Xi, but as a result, it looked to the Chinese people as if he was just being embraced. So how do you work around that and and develop an effective human rights policy?
3: We have a lot of experts here in the room, so far be it for me to give any kind of uh, a guidance uh, or real input on, uh, on this particular area, in this particular area. I'd have to say that, um, first of all, let's just be who we are as a nation. We speak to values. We speak to the role and dignity of the individual. And when we try to hide that uh, or shade it in some way, it always ends up hurting us over the longer term. Uh, so why not be who you are? Why not stand up and just point out, what has made us the nation state we are the role of the individual I know it's a Jeffersonian concept here versus a Confucian concept there but be who we are for heaven's sake then in terms of programming longer term what is the one area where you're going to get their attention more than any other it's going to be in the area of economics and trade so why not have a conversation about the fundamental rights of workers uh, in the manufacturing zones of Guangzhou, you name the spot, Uh, and begin there. Uh, And I think there are enough American companies who do a lot of trade and uh, who prosper a lot from the work that is done there who would be willing to join that discussion. Uh, And it can start out with the fundamental concept of the right of the worker. Uh, And once you've kind of made a little bit of progress there, I think you can then build upon that theme. What is important is that you start the dialogue at some point. Uh, and that's where we haven't been able to get really any traction at all. So you go from one case to another without really kind of building any kind of momentum around this as a theme. So, you know, you got to kind of start with the idea that human rights maybe shouldn't be sequestered in one little office in the State Department, but maybe ought to have more of a cross-cutting uh, role in the discussions that take place uh, on the economic side and on the trade side. Uh, I think that would be... Probably one way to get the attention of Chinese decision makers. And I'm here to tell you that American corporations believe in that, too. They're not going to shy away from wanting to step up and help. Uh, Of course, they want competitiveness. They want to be able to trade and invest. But I think this is an area that most around a boardroom table in any corporation uh, would be able to relate to. But I think that's probably the most effective entry point if I had to identify one.
2: Ken uh, Lieberthal.
5: Thank you very much for your really uh, wonderfully balanced set of remarks uh, across a wide array of issues today. Um, I'm not quite sure how to put this question, frankly. It, it is clear that the leadership in China and the broad policy-making sector in China feels pressure uh, from the public like they haven't before and try to be more responsive to it than they have before. Social media are having a transformative effect in China, culturally and politically. I guess my question is whether you worry about uh, the potential for this getting out of hand. In other words, the potential for massive instability in China. Because one of the things I see in social media, as I dip into it, is not only a lot of uh, complaint, but very often almost a derisive attitude uh, toward authority. Uh, that these guys obviously are corrupt, incompetent, not acting in the people's... interest. A lot of things around a lot of incidents. And if you lose a sense of prestige of governing authorities, you can be in really serious trouble. Uh, So I guess my question is, how do you kind of think about that issue? Do you think they clearly have it in hand, end, and we're going to see a kind of uh, managed evolution as they change the system step by step with a new leadership, or do you worry that, that there may be something in the future here that really gets out of hand uh, and that will create a new set of issues
3: for us? Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Great to see you. I mean, answering a question from Ken Lieberthal reminds me of when I was sitting in a hotel room while in Beijing, and Dr. Kissinger made a visit over there. It was before he spoke to a group at a lunchtime gathering. And he, he turned to me, the poor ambassador, and he said, what do you think I should say to the group? <laughs> and I said, sir, bar be it for me to tell the person who is responsible for this relationship what you ought to tell the group. So anything I say, Ken, would barely pass your class, I'm sure. Um, so if I could take you back to uh, a dinner that Mary Kay and I had uh, at the residence where we invited 12 of the top bloggers uh, in, the, in the country. 11 showed up. The one who was affiliated with the state uh, uh, media outlet did not show. Probably arguing that having this conversation in the living room of the U.S. ambassador was probably not good for career prospects. (laughs) But there around the table were 11 very articulate folks. Two of the bloggers here had readerships, each of 125 million. And I stopped to kind of take in what they were talking about around the table Political reform, I mean, aggressive conversations that would have landed anyone in deep, deep trouble just a few short years ago. I thought, this is a changing place. And these people are on the cutting edge of that conversation. So what's going to happen? I think the conversations, the tensions will build up to the 212 degree boiling point. I think Xi Jinping, uh, when he's able to consolidate his power... I think his attempt will be to try to stay a step ahead of uh, the conversation by loosening up something here and there because I think this whole conversation and again if you if you read the blogs and the messaging that you refer to it gets right to the heart and soul of the party's most vulnerable area which is legitimacy and credibility they lose their legitimacy they're in deep trouble so what do you do to maintain that legitimacy and the credibility when you've got these conversations taking place and I'm not sure that people at the standing committee level were even aware of these conversations a few short years ago I don't think there's a choice other than to let a little bit of pressure out of the valve from time to time when I say one of the early areas of focus by Xi Jinping I'm just guessing a clear articulation of the role of the Internet in society uh, and certain liberties or freedoms that might be accorded of uh, the Internet. That will have to change. And I think they will make the argument about economic development and the need for a creative class. We want a Silicon Valley. We want an Austin, Texas. We want an Ann Arbor, Michigan. And in order to do that, you have to have the coming together of capital, great educational institutions, and the free flow of ideas. I think they will probably make that argument en route to satisfying many of those with the pent-up frustration who are voicing it actively. Something will have to be done in terms of a little bit of give and I'm guessing that this is very much on Xi Jinping's mind as he approaches his positions of leadership.
2: Bill Rhodes, right here. And I should, um, did I properly thank Citi for providing us with this beautiful venue at the very beginning? But thank you.
6: Following up on on your remarks and the conversation that uh, we started to have with Hank Greenberg, I was recently, well, it's not so recent now, it's about six, seven weeks ago, in the Boao Forum. And um, the new premier to be, now Vice Premier Li, uh, in his speech made a very big point about the need for China to get more reengaged in trade and the economies of Asia. And he was particularly thinking about the northeast economic Bloc, where you have China, uh, now the world's second largest economy, Japan third, and the Korean one changes from time to time, but I think it's 10th or 11th Move together. Now, this has been on the drawing board for the last three or four years, but apparently it's starting to take hold because I was with the trade minister of uh, Korea last week, and he had just come from Beijing, and the Chinese are pushing it, And there's a lot of reception in Korea. Uh, Having talked with Han Duk-su, who was the ambassador of uh, Korea here and previous prime minister of of Korea. And he told me the same thing. He's now heading KITA, and this is one of his uh, major goals and objectives. When do you think we're going to start actually moving ahead towards some trade agreement with China? Because... uh, uh, the Europeans, as you know, with all the problems they have, they, they still have that as a major goal. Uh, they're so tied up in their own problems, which is another reason why I think China would be much more open to doing something with us, because uh, I think they were caught by surprise, uh, not just by, Steve, what happened here in the United States in 07 and uh, 08, but they were caught very much by surprise with what's going on in Europe. Uh, So I'd ask you if you could uh, give us the thoughts that you have on that. And uh, lastly, thank you for your service. Uh, I think what you did was a great thing.
3: Thank you. You're very kind. First of all, I, I like the idea of the two countries coming together around a big visionary objective. I would have to say that right now we're having a hard time figuring out what that objective is to be. Both on the world stage, we both have global responsibilities. What is it that you begin sinking your teeth into that really kind of allows us to come together uh, in a productive, uplifting way? Uh, We know we disagree on lots of issues. We probably always will. But what can we work together that will lift the prospects of people on, on both sides of the Pacific? You stop and conclude that Northeast Asia... There's going to be 20, 25 percent of the world's GDP in the years to come. When you factor in Japan and South Korea, Taiwan, the better part of uh, northern China, Dongbei, and uh, just below. Uh, And you'd have to say our our, our stakes are considerable there. Our economic interests are quite profound in that part of the world. Uh, I would argue that we have completely underutilized our economic levers and influence as a country, completely underutilized them. Uh, We have so much more that we could be doing uh, in terms of engaging with the region, uh, not only Northeast Asia, but Southeast Asia as well. Um, And it starts with simple things like trade facilitation agreements. I mean, having negotiated a few of those when I was uh, Deputy U.S. Trade Representative. You know, let's just sit down and say, let's just take the area of, of, of trade facilitation. Once trade gets into port, How do we get it to its final destination? What are the respective tariffs? What are the the respective uh, non-tariff barriers that we need to begin looking at? I think to put a free trade agreement on the table right at the beginning would probably not even be accepted by the business community uh, in the United States would be my guess. Why do I say that? I say that because another one of these things I've witnessed in the last couple of years that I haven't seen in 30 years. I never thought I'd see it. It's the souring of attitudes uh, among the U.S. business community toward China. Some because of intellectual property rights violations, some because of uh, closed markets. Even though I would say having done a, you know an unscientific survey as ambassador, having visited practically every chamber of commerce in the country multiple times, and I would do just an unofficial survey about who was making money, who was profitable. I didn't say that 80, 90% of the companies in China, or American companies are, are turning a, a pretty good profit. Uh, but the attitude has soured uh, because of what we discussed recently, whether it's indigenous innovation, or IPR, or kind of the slow pace of market opening uh, uh, measures, steps being taken. So I would say, as part of our economic relationship, you know, we had to move toward a bilateral investment treaty as a consideration. We had to start thinking about a trade facilitation plan that will ultimately, if China then begins to make the right moves, take us in that direction ultimately. That longer term could be linked into the other major economies of the region. I think ultimately we need to start seeing, you know, as Robert Scalapino used to talk about, you know, the natural economic territories. You know, there are probably two or three natural economic territories when you look at the wide expanse of the Pacific Rim. And one of them would be the Northeast Asia region. Uh, so what is it that you can do under a trade facilitation working group, uh, trade, uh, a TIFA uh, kind of agreement, that then ultimately could be tied into Japan, which I would argue is a terribly challenging market uh, in terms of just market, uh, uh, market penetration. And, you know, don't, I, I serve on the board of Ford Motor Company. Don't even, don't even get many there talking about the auto trade. Uh, but something that longer term would, would allow us to make progress not only within China, but but indeed within the region. You're speaking to something that that would identify opportunities. That's what we need in the relationship. We need opportunities that we can work toward that allow us to stay together at the table, stay focused on something that would be good in raising the economic prospects for people in both countries. And that is
2: what we're lacking right now. Let me recognize another former governor. Tom Kane from the great state of New Jersey. Oh. Great to see, you, governor. Good
3: to see you governor. Thank you so much
0: for your service and for your the quality of your remarks today and sharing them with us. I'm sort of curious. United States Congress. Who is there there who both understands what kind of thing you're talking about with the relationship <laughs> and even more important perhaps are there people there willing to move the relationship forward in an intelligent way and if so are
3: they (laughs) well you're really going to get me in trouble Um, um, well let's just say that when you're hard-pressed to identify leaders within Congress who understand the relationship who have taken an interest in developing personal Relationships, uh, and who have invested part of their career in really solidifying a strong bilateral relationship, because Congress obviously plays a very key role. Then you know you're you're in a you're in a difficult spot. Uh, I would be hard pressed to name more than a few that might even be pushing it uh, in uh, in in both bodies who understand the relationship who have invested some of their time in the relationship uh, and who are willing to kind of keep it going, keep the machinery running, as opposed to using it as a political piñata, which is a very easy thing to do, particularly during uh, an election cycle like like we're seeing now. So what do we do about this? You know, I long argued uh, with the foreign ministry in Beijing and uh, and here at home that... You know, I saw a much different side of the relationship when I was governor. I saw two things happen. And again, I'd been part of the relationship. I was an ad- advocate for closer ties. I introduced Mandarin study into our public school system. Uh, we have more Mandarin-speaking students than any state in America at one point in time. Why? Because young kids, uh, when they're introduced to a language, particularly a strategically 21st century uh, language, uh, their minds are going to be open not only to the language but to the culture as well. It'll be the prism through which they better understand someone on the other side of the world. So it's an investment in the future. I also saw the parents of these kids who had never been to China from rural parts of the state lining up outside the classroom to get their kids in Chinese language class. Why? Because they knew that their kids were stepping onto a much different world stage than, than, they, than, than they understood during, during their lifetimes. Second... When that alfalfa market was open, alfalfa and hay in China, to see the attitudes change on the part of the exporters, just in my state, all of a sudden, China became less a threat and more of a customer. That first bale of alfalfa that was sent, that was a big deal. And so I saw both the cultural and economic aspects of the relationship, how we ought to be investing in a longer-term stable trajectory. But I also on the economic side, what does it all mean? To me it means, and I try to argue this with the foreign ministry and others, we have to humanize the relationship. We have to make the relationship relevant in the lives of people at all levels of society. It cannot simply be a relationship where, you know, people talk about the issues in New York and Washington and Los Angeles in large and intimidating lecture halls. But rather... Uh, We see it as a relationship that impacts people at all levels of society because of trade, because of opportunity, because of educational prospects. Uh, And once you humanize a a relationship, then the politicians get involved because they're going to follow the people who see something in it that they like or that they want as part of their future. And they're then going to put pressure on the elected officials to get with it. We haven't reached that moment in time yet. Uh... And I think it's important, and that's why this organization is such a terribly important part of the overall relationship, because we have to humanize the relationship. If we can't make the U.S.-China relationship relevant in the lives of all people at all levels of American society, and over time more in China, then we're going to fail longer term. And the stakes are way too high for us to fail in this relationship. Right now, A lot of folks in America don't see the value in promoting a strong us china relationship. So politicians get away with bashing and uh, using the stereotypes in, in their town hall meetings and speeches. I've seen it time after time because they can get away with it, that's why. Of course we have problems in the relationship. I've seen them firsthand for years and years and years. But we also have a relationship that we must make work. We have no choice. It's important for people in both countries, it's important for the region, and increasingly it's important for the world that the United States and China are able to get their act together on economic policy and on security policy. We cannot let it fail. Uh, The stakes are way too high. And so part of what I hope we all do in this room is step up an effort toward humanizing the U.S.-China relationship because that's the only way you're going to get the attention of Congress longer term where they begin to say, my constituents now care about this relationship. Why is it that, you know, chairing the US-China caucus is always a congressman from Washington State, right? Seattle? Well, duh, as my daughter would say. You know, They trade, you know, half of their livelihood in that part of the country is based on trade with Asia and specifically China, I would say. So it's important to them. It's become uh, important at all levels of society in Seattle. Uh, we now need to make it important, uh, as I think it will become, you know, 10 and 20 and 30 years from
2: now. Of course, when he was ambassador, he participated in our China Town Hall meeting, where we brought it to venues all across the United States, and he was the featured speaker. So even as ambassador, he was already doing that. Uh, Dan Rosen, who just wrote a report. Oh, it's going to have to be the last question. But Dan just wrote a report on uh, Chinese investment in the United States and is director of the National Committee.
1: Steve, thank you. Uh, Ambassador, we're very excited to have you on the board. During your tenure on the board, some new challenges to bringing Chinese and American interests together around economics are going to occur that we'll need to work together uh, as members of the, the committee setting the agenda. Um, one of them is, as you noted at the very beginning of the conversation, one of the consequences of the global crisis was that China reverted back toward favoring the state-owned enterprises. Uh, is that a temporary phenomenon that is the exception to the sort of long cycle of movement toward marketization? Many of the uh, policy moves you endorse, for example, the bilateral investment treaty, now we're shoehorning into them new uh, concepts around state-owned enterprises, competitive neutrality, etc., that are going to maybe make it quite a bit harder. Uh, to deal with China in the positive way that we need to, if we believe that they really are backsliding in a more statist direction and we need to fundamentally change our game. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Nothing lasts forever.
3: Uh, but I think China, in their attempt to, to pay the bills, if I could put it that way, to make the math work economically, which today, if you start looking at the math, looking at the demographic changes and what it means... Uh, in paying the bills, China's got a real challenge. So they will have to move from the export model to more of a consumption model, allowing their people to move up the economic ladder. And I think the implications for the state-owned enterprises will be, will be part of that as well. Uh, I believe that one of the most significant uh, uh, areas of focus in the bilateral relationship will likely be on China's investment here in the United States, which I think is inevitable and could be a very significant trend in the years to come uh but they're they 're very reluctant and they 're reluctant because they don 't want uh, they don 't want to be rebuffed and they don 't want to see this result in what happened twenty five years ago with Japan, uh, which was more of a negative experience so it 'll be very interesting in the years to come to see how China you know with three trillion bucks you know in the bank and a tenth of that allocated to you know some arm of of investment in CIC having a certain percentage of that. A big chunk of money has been allocated for the U.S. market. Some to Europe, but a big chunk to the U.S. market. They want to park it here because after all, we're 25% of the world's GDP. We're still the best market in the world to be investing in. So how that happens and the mechanics of working that out will be, I think, a very interesting thing to watch play out both at Our federal government level but also at the local government level because my sense is that China will want to move in more at the local level for investments taking stakes of companies small stakes to begin with as a legitimate legitimate investment as any foreign investor might want to do but working with the mayor, the governor, the member of congress in making it an economic development and a a jobs creation argument as in we're saving jobs that otherwise might have been lost. Uh, My sense is that's how the early investments have and will maybe continue to take place and we're going to have to kind of decide for ourselves and I talked to governors about this and I talked to mayors about this do we want to treat Chinese capital and Chinese investment as we would investment from any other country of the world Uh, are we recognizing it uh, as being part of the global marketplace and I think increasingly investment from China will play a role in our economic growth uh, and our overall development. The mechanics of Working that out and, and, and making it happen uh, haven't been uh, finely designed, but you 're going to see states and the federal government I think step up because I, there will be a need number one on our part to, to get it and two a desire on the part of China to make the investment
2: i'm afraid despite lots of hands still up and lots of questions that we've reached the appointed time i I'm so impressed, in fact I'm reminded kind of of the way often when talking with the organization department, the Tujur You know, I'm always impressed that they choose people to serve who have had experience in farm, in in kind of agricultural community and urban community and foreign affairs and trade and they they, they actually the people who rise in the Chinese system interestingly enough are people who are extraordinarily well qualified. You may not agree with their values, but they're well qualified. And when I listen to John Huntsman and I listen and I think of his background, I'd always would say if it was the Zujibur making decision, you would be president of the United States. <laughs> and not because of the politics, because of the qualifications, but really. Thank you for this
4: she
3: unbelievable...
4: <laughs> <laughs>